0: the exact sales i could i'll try to reverse engineer it, but in total i made a hundred thousand dollars between sophomore year of high school and then freshman year of college I, so let's, yeah let's and it was funny with me so i you know i already had a car i you know i had my clothes so i didn't i didn't spend any money the only thing i did is i got a speeding ticket and then in response to that i bought a radar detector <laughs> otherwise i literally spent zero i'm drew Brenneman, and this is the rise and invest podcast I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. Welcome to the Rise and Invest Show. I'm Drew Brenneman, a multifamily real estate investor. I bought my first deal when I was 19 years old with my own money. On the show today is Joe Smazel, multifamily broker here in Chicago.
1: What up? <laughs> hey.
0: So we're going to get into uh, some, you know, some deal stories today. Kind of hopefully things where if you're looking to buy or sell property on your own, you can gain a lot of insight from hearing about some of the deals we've been a part of. Joe had yawned in a previous episode. Uh, had a blast. I'm glad
1: I didn't mess it up too bad. I got invited. I know, back. yeah, that's that's right. <laughs> well, so. I might have messed. Up. I don't know. I'm back. <laughs> you're back.
0: You know, we we kind of got into some of the you know ins and outs of brokerage and maybe what a buyer can yeah. do to set themselves apart. Didn't really ask any sort of like war stories, deal stories. over for the first deal, so you know, I want to you know get into some deal stories uh, from sure. you. Two, if you got any questions for me, things about my story or about as a buyer, why what's don't going you to,
1: start with the first? Because you just in the intro, you said that your first you bought your first deal when you're 19 years old with your own money, and then start you, there. I mean, okay. you, you share that because I don't and, know the story, okay? So, start there.
0: Both my parents are teachers, so it wasn't like I'm from like a real estate family or anything. Real great place to grow up though, because then all summer, you know, all the time we had tons of time together, cool. uh, so playing any like sports or anything we went to the batting cages every day and um it was a good time but there weren't any like business connections or any any money to work with to start but I was always real entrepreneurial as a as a kid and actually I started my first uh, first business doing magic shows did I ever tell you about that or <laughs> no the first business I had I did children's parties for magic shows so it was a hobby to start with and you're how old starting in sixth grade I started doing right. magic but just as like a hobby and then by the, I think seventh and eighth grade I was doing did kids parties. So for 50 bucks, I would do 20 minutes of magic and then 10 minutes of balloon animals. So in the the balloon animals, like the guy at the magic store, his whole thing was that's going to be, you get something to take with them. Everybody loves it. And every show that I did, I got, I got end up getting paid 60 bucks. You know, I didn't know about tipping really but i remember leaving everyone like oh, i almost really <laughs> killed it they gave me 320s can here
1: you still, of, you still got it with the balloon animals
0: no i still, still can make the the the, the the dog and some of the main giveaways and uh, especially the card tricks i still can do those so that was my first first business and then i started you know i saw some of my friends playing this video game diablo 2 online i had never ever played it before but and it wasn't really the kind of game that I so much liked from a video game standpoint. It was the, these games where you just go around this world, like attacking things, basically just clicking. So I liked sports and strategy type things more. But they told me, they're like, you know, you could sell, you can sell your items when you're done for real money, like on eBay. And I was like, oh, really? Let me, let me, that sounds more like something <laughs> I'd want to do. Let me look into this. So I go on eBay and it's the same thing. Sometimes it sells for five bucks. Sometimes it sells for 15 So, you know, I didn't know what an inefficient market was, but at the time, but that's exactly what it was. You could bid on an auction. And it's funny as a, this was probably my freshman or sophomore year of high school, I'm doing this. And so you go, you know, like, well, yeah, you can just win this auction in the middle of the day on a Saturday for five bucks and then list it for 15. You know, now as an adult, I get the, like both sides of the buyer. Like, okay, if you're a busy professional, pay 15 bucks for yeah. the item, whatever. It
1: Cost what it costs when you want it, right? At the
0: time, I had no idea. I was like, I don't understand why these people are paying 15 bucks. Then you could just buy it for five and blow your whole Saturday on it, <laughs> you know. Started just, I bought one thing. I resold it. It was an armor set. Like, I bought it for, like, five bucks and sold it for, like, ten. And just kind of just kept doing that. And I ended up, you know, doing between f- probably five and 10,000 transactions uh, over the course of four years. So my, like, eBay feedback still, if I wanted to sell something, I have, like, 5,000. Uh, really? positive feedback on there and
1: what'd you make from your was your average one like five bucks ten bucks
0: yeah i mean the exact sales i could i'll try to reverse engineer it. but in total i made a hundred thousand dollars between sophomore year of high school and then freshman year of college so yeah let's yeah, <laughs> let's, <solid>. yeah. <laughs> and it was funny with me so i you know i already had a car i you know i had my clothes so i didn't i didn't spend any money the only thing i did is i got a speeding ticket and then in response to that i bought a radar detector <laughs> otherwise i literally spent zero And even, and so what I started doing was with that money, but just to answer the transactions question is like between five and 10,000. So yeah, probably making, you know, about 10 to 12 bucks a deal. And then yeah, every day I'd come from school and there'd be 20, 30 deliveries to make. And I'd, uh,
1: so let's get in. So did you like the, the rush of the transaction or did you like seeing the money in your bank account accumulate? It was a, you're a kid. So there's a game in it for you there, right? Like there's something in there. What was, what part of it was like gamified for you?
0: That's interesting. I mean, well, I like to wheel and deal. Like I like that, like just the buying and selling yeah. part. And yeah, and I liked the success I was having with it yeah. where I was really, would really be pumped to come home. And it's also one thing, this is before smartphones, before you could go library and go on the computer during like study hall or something. So you'd come home and then you'd see what happened actually. And you'd have an inbox full of orders. This it It's probably
1: a healthy thing to like think about sometimes these days when you're like, you know, sometimes if you've got the machine created the right way and your business is operating, yeah. your team is working the way that they should and everything. Stepping away from it sometimes yeah. and seeing what it did when you were away is really gratifying, right? Because yeah. it's the machine that you built and then seeing it produce when you're not there is a cool thing. I didn't I didn't know any of that. So you're a magician turned like video game broker, token broker who's got now six figures <laughs> in his yeah. bank account. That's um so where does it go from there? Where do well, we get to where do we get to real estate?
0: As I'm making the money, I'm looking into what I could invest it in. Uh one thing my parents, especially my dad, who was real big on investing. That's like a high school kid, by the way. Right. So as a high schooler, <laughs> what I did in the summer was I went to the library and I would get books like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Think and Grow Rich. All the books people when they're like forty are like, You should read this and do this. <laughs> I read it when I was, you know, sixteen. Where we got to real estate was so I read all these investing books and most of them started out with the stock market, you know, intelligent investor and just different books everybody hears about. And so I started trading stocks and options. And so But again, with no smartphone and being, you know, whatever, 16, 17 years old, you don't have a lot of patience. So I put on these like call spreads or other trades or just buy something like uh, buy a stock. And then if nothing happens in like two days, you just like sell it, you know, and also, too, with not seeing the stuff during the day and just kind of the market wouldn't even be open before I went to school. So you try to put on a trade, hope it would open and you could put it and it would go through and then you come back and the market's closed. So it was a really not a good strategy. I lost some money doing that. Not a crazy amount, but you know, so then enough um, to learn a lesson, but it was in not, in not a tiny amount, like definitely I lost more than 10 grand uh, Mm -hmm. with the stock trading idea. And so as I'm doing that, I'm looking at other investments Mm -hmm. and reading about it. And I read a book about real estate investing, but it's just by Gary Eldred. It's called real estate investing, I think. And and for a lot of the new employees or new people, especially an intern, like I buy the book for them and say like, you should read this. And it's, but it's really, it's not geared to like running a fund or getting investors yeah. or anything like what we're doing yeah. today. It's more just, you want to buy a duplex or something. Here's how it would work. And then they, you know, they talk about property management and, you know, and get, get the, the whole thing. Have you reread it? I haven't, but I, you know, there's a lot of things that I and still have taken away from it. I bet it, yeah. I bet it,
1: like, I bet it yeah. rejuvenate you'd be cool to kind of go back to the blocking and tackling. Okay. It's fun that you gift it to your employees, though.
0: So. And also, too, it's a good way to tell how interested they are in real estate. Mm-hmm. You know, if you give yeah. them the book and then they never read it,
1: I remember there was a book that they gave to brokers when they started to and I read it. It was like 10 Habits of Highly Successful Dominate or something like that. And I gave it the same thing I gave it to everybody who like I was mentoring. I think everybody said they read it. I don't know, you know, but
0: that's funny. Reading that book, I mean, really what stuck out with me is like real estate's a combination of an investment in a business mm-hmm. and then it's kind of like a bond. And so I really they got into the four ways you make money in real estate, so cash flow, so you collect rents, you pay expenses. There's money left at the end of the month. Then that's, that's one way. Then the building obviously goes up in value and appreciates. Mm-hmm. And then you pay your loan down over time. And then you get this tax break called depreciation. So those are the four ways you make money. The depreciation thing, I didn't really grasp how that would work. Yeah. They just had such a simple example. And then comparing it to my stock market investment, what really resonated with me was like, there'll be some cash flow, And then their example in the book was you put 10% down, and then the building, this is, I'm reading this in 2003. So I'm reading this book in 2003 from whatever, 19, beginning of time almost to 2007, you know, homes have just gone straight up. So they, you know, I'm reading this in 2003 and they go, homes go up 3% every year. It's like clockwork. Here's a chart yep. since the 70s. Okay. You know, it's okay. the, 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 uh, okay. the like clockwork thing got broken later on. So if you put 10% down, it goes up 3% a year. That's a 30% return, not including cash flow, not including paying the loan down, not even factoring in the tax breaks. So I saw that. I'm like, this sounds great. Let's
1: do it. It Is the sounding board, I think you mentioned your dad doing some studying or your mom, like were your parents your sounding board for this? I mean, you're young and I know at that point, like you're wise beyond your years or you're like thinking about different things than a 16 year old or 17 year old is used to thinking about. Who is the gut check for you in this?
0: Well, what's interesting. So they would definitely listen to what I was saying Mm -hmm. where they were not just like, oh, okay, nice idea. And like, not there. They were definitely listening to what I was saying, but they didn't they don't have any like business experience. And then they don't. Uh, the only experience they had as a as a landlord themselves, they, they purchased a farm like in the 70s and it had a house on it that they were they're thinking of moving to in the middle of Wisconsin. And, you know, you don't get very good tenants at, uh, you know, whatever <laughs> it was, one hundred dollars a month in rent in the kind of in the middle of nowhere. So, you know, to them, they just they just thought this is going to be like could be a lot of trouble uh from their experience at least as being the landlord and then but they're not they're not telling me not to do it they're not telling me to do it they're just kind of listening but you know they saw me succeeding with the other stuff you know with the magic show I was working out and then the internet thing taking off So no they they were supportive of it but they weren't they didn't I talk didn't, you out of it and they right didn't
1: talk you into it you know it was they were like healthy level of uh being constructive
0: yeah they were for sure supportive yeah. and they were you know but not supportive to the extent where like okay great you made a you know you got 80 grand left from that money you made cool we'll put another 80 in. like not that never happened yeah, no, they never but yeah totally supportive we didn't need to do it but then they because i had like documentable income from the business mm-hmm. to get the loan approved i could get a little little ro- lower rate they co-signed and they did. Okay. So I mean, it's not, they did do plenty to help.
1: So what'd you buy? I want to hear, what, what, how'd you find the deal? And tell tell us a little bit about the, yeah. the deal. Yeah,
0: I guess let me, I'll back up a touch just to, okay. uh, on kind of how it all played out. So I'm from the Milwaukee area. I already had gotten into UW-Madison, University, University of Wisconsin, Madison. But I really, I went there because it's like an hour away and it's in-state tuition. Wasn't thinking about real estate yet or anything. I just, I got in. I was actually if you had asked me, like when I was a senior in high school, what I do, I wanted to be a doctor, some sort of, you know, they'll call like easier like medicine, like a dermatologist, not like where you're a surgeon. That seems really <laughs> stressful and difficult. And at the time, like subway restaurants were really popular, they were just blown up everywhere. Someone I knew worked for, worked at Subway, just okay. like a high school friend. And that guy owned three subways and he had a Porsche and was making hundreds of thousands a year. Not the high school kid, the person who owned the three subways. Okay. So this is like, okay let's see what that guy's doing. Maybe I should be a doctor, you know, like Monday to Thursday, Mr. Dermatologist, and then start cranking open in all these subways. You know, that's what I was thinking I would do in high school. Uh, but then I, so anyways, so I get into Madison and I'm thinking about doing medicine. you know, I was already, you know, fast forward to like orientation, let's say I've been reading a lot more about real estate up to that point. And just on the class signup day, I decided, you know what, I'm going to major in business. I actually <laughs> hadn't decided if what I'd go into, I just thought like, I'm liking this idea of opening up a subway or investing in real estate or something more than medicine. Okay. And so then like maybe majoring in accounting or finance would be better. And then where I really, where I lucked out in a, in a big way is that UW Madison, they have, depending on the year, the number one or number two best undergrad real estate program. So then I ended up majoring in real estate and
1: getting a degree in it. And you just went because the tuition was cheaper and it was close enough to home or enough away from home, I guess. So yeah, so it worked out. Uh, lucked into a world-class real estate program. Category. And a lot
0: of my like good friends today, it's like we, most of them, they went to Madison, they're in real estate. Like it's a tight yeah, crew.
1: I'm a Hawkeye, so you're not yeah. going to get a whole lot of like support from me on this, but it's fine. I'm with you. And so but in terms <laughs> of the
0: first deal, so then I, I get a realtor. So I, I go to I go to UW-Madison, I'm living in the dorms and I decide, okay, I'm going to, buy a property while I'm a freshman. So that I'm going to have a place to live sophomore year. So I get a realtor. We start looking at deals. You know, one thing to starting out. And so as like a general tip, I'd give everybody listening or watching and give to everybody like starting out. There's so much you don't know. And you could just get so overwhelmed on. So also to people who would start out and they're raising passive capital and getting a big loan or to a rehab deal that that is, you know, now that's easy for me. But the first time this would have been crazy
1: yeah you started at 101 we're looking at you started your real estate investment with the duplex i mean that's the basics i
0: mean i basically just learned by doing so i started out and really what i was focused on on that uh first deal was just make sure it's cash flow positive you know i don't really the way they're valuing these properties i think i get it and then this the tax breaks and paying the loan down like i get most of that but not like to me like just set up a deal where the worst case scenario is you overpaid, but you're still making two, three hundred bucks a month in cash flow. And then you just hold it. I spend most of my time really making sure on that first deal. I mean, obviously, people in Madison, they were using a gross rent multiplier to value it. So I could. So value what it.
1: was it? What was the GRM? Ten. Yeah. So okay.
0: the market was a ten. Uh, you know, if something sold for an eleven, that was just someone grossly overpaying. So, it was, you know, around a ten. Yeah. And so I found a deal that, yeah, was a would have been a ten GRM if the whole thing was leased. Uh, but the one of the units was empty. One was rented, yeah. which wasn't a problem for me because I was looking to move into the place potentially the next year. So I ran the numbers. But when I say numbers, I'm talking, I'm not talking about like, what's your net IRR to your LP? I'm talking, <laughs> what's, does this make money <laughs> Rent, monthly? Expenses, yeah.
1: insurance, gas. Yeah.
0: And so, right. So I run my numbers, you know, probably no management fee in the budget or leasing fee or anything. No vacancy, yeah, no n-
1: reserves. Yeah.
0: You know, but for sure, I probably had vacancy in there, but definitely not the other stuff. And then, you know, but the basics, you know, real estate taxes, insurance, maintenance, that sort of stuff. And it was depending on what I could hit for the rents. Yeah, it was going to be 250 bucks a month positive cash flow with me living in one of the bedrooms. So then if I wasn't in there, maybe some rents not that high in Madison at the time, maybe 700 bucks. So anyway, so I don't waste time. I buy it, Um, get it under contract, get it closed with a bank loan, put 15% down
1: how much was it?
0: Purchase is 220,000. Okay. So then yeah, 15%, um, it was about 50 grand. You know, I think that might include a little bit for closing costs. Yeah. About 50 grand. You know, I ended up buying it really right from a price standpoint. And then uh, a year later I sold it for 270, 280. So I doubled my money actually on the first deal of 2X in a year.
1: Just like the, just like the days of selling (laughs) like video game tokens. Yeah. Yeah. So then, so, you got he, a little taste of it, huh? And
0: so, and then at yeah, once I bought, and also, too, it's funny you bring up the video game thing. I, so I said I started out with doing Diablo in the uh, two, and then all these other games popped up along the way, and I got just smarter how I did it. I didn't even buy the games, I just knew people who had the items, and then I would have them delivered to the customer. So, anyways, point being, I would, I did Lineage Two and all these other games, and then I was doing this, selling gold or something in the Star Wars game. And when I bought this when I'm a freshman in, College. When I bought the rental property, I'm like, "Well, now I, let's focus on this." And yeah. then that's when I that's when the video game thing stopped.
1: Doubled your money in your first deal. It's a pretty good one. I don't know if we're sharing. It. We're sitting in the Rise and Invest office or the Rise and Invest office. Like, we are gonna talk about? There's a lot of space between $220,000 duplex and this luxury boutique building in the middle of Fulton Market West Loop that you bought for mid yeah, 30s. 32, yeah, 32. Uh, yeah,
0: million. I'll keep going on the story where, um, and then just kind of hit it chronologically. I think okay. so the, yeah, I bought that first deal when I was 19 and then a few that fall. So then, um, I think I'm still 19, but then it would have been the start of sophomore year. I bought another duplex on okay. the same street. Then the following year I bought another one, a three unit.
1: Did you keep those or were you flipping? Or, you know, I only, I only like ended flipping up flipping. Yeah. But. So
0: I had the first one I had for a, a year. The second one I had for like maybe like seven or five to seven years. Okay. The third one I only owned for a year yeah. and change. And then uh fourth one I, that I bought when I was a junior, I owned that for 10 years. Okay. So the, yeah, like numbers wise, that's how the first deal went where I owned it for a year and doubled my money. Like the third deal was another, these all ended up being like value add deals. I just never heard that term. And I just, I knew what the rents were so well from being a student there. And you could talk to your friends that then, you know, I was buying deals where the rents were below market. The GRM was low. It was just like perfect storm good buys. And one of them, the third deal I bought, I paid 650,000 for. And I had a broker tell me like I'll sell, I'll be able to sell this for 925,000 a year later then unfortunately that was you know 2007 he told me that and by the time i started selling in 2008 the market had dropped some so i didn't sell it for 925 but i sold it for i think close to 800 grand okay so still uh, a Good big deal. win yeah. yeah and then that third and fourth deal i basically put no money down on those because as the lending environment got even crazier you could just you know uh now i'm like a experienced real estate investor with my two deals and get no (laughs) no money down loans so that uh you know so that in terms of like a multiple return i mean i didn't really put any money in you know infinity multiple so then i you know one thing that i sort of learned though selling those deals don't don't take the money out of play like so what i did was i sold that third deal and you know maybe let's say yeah i put nothing down maybe i netted like a hundred thousand dollars from that but I didn't put that in another deal. I just had it. And then that just kind of get, you know, spent, invested, wherever it went. Whereas if I would have just ideally, you would have put that in another deal right away, yeah. you know, whether it's a 1031 or not, just get it into another deal and let it keep compounding. Or I really wish I went to sold it because I had another deal that wasn't, it was actually my fourth deal wasn't as good as that one that I had sold, which it would keep the numbers in order. That was the third, the first and third deal I sold, right, pretty quickly. Then the fourth one I kept.
1: For fourth one you kept for 10 years, second one you kept for 7, You said. That
0: one I don't remember the timing as much cuz it's not a round number like the other one I owned it for like exactly 10 years. Okay. And what happened on that fourth deal, which wasn't as good as the third, I paid 670,000 for that one and I sold it for a million too. So that one like I could have done the same thing on the other one if I would have just left the chips in play.
1: And you're in college
0: still. Uh, well I bought all four when I was in college. Right. Okay. So. And then the and then the, I sold the first one while I was in college. The third one I sold.
1: Edge graduated, so I was one year out. And then the other ones, yeah. I, was. I don't know if you want to talk more about your time at Madison, but fast forward, you graduate, you've got a few buildings in the portfolio still. You're evaluating which ones to sell or to keep. This is in what two two thousand what you graduated in two thousand eight two thousand seven two thousand seven. Yep. Okay, so. Where do you go from there? I'd invested all my like, individual capital. I never,
0: never crossed my mind to get investors or anything. Uh, I just, I didn't know anybody. There were no family members or yeah. friends that could have. So I never, I don't think that even crossed my mind to try to get investors. It was just investing my own money, doing deals. And I had put all my money out there on the table. And then it was 2007, the winter, I graduated December 2007. So I could see things also slow. It was already slowing down. Uh, In terms of the like, you
1: were getting feedback on your deals from the agent that it was not, it wasn't at the clip that it was at, or
0: just the sales market, you could tell just looking at the deals. I don't remember if any were for sale at that point, but just you could just tell like things are we're gonna hit a slowdown.
1: Hang on there because a lot of people can't tell, right? I mean, a lot of people couldn't tell in hindsight, so what do you you identified it in the inventory first or the pricing metrics or no i think with it 2007 the the spidey sense or what you know what, what
0: no it was i think by you know we were on some sort of real estate field trip which i think was in september 2007 we went to chicago and some uh lending like some debt brokers were talking and there already was like a failed like cmbs auction there was actually it wasn't no spidey sense. It was actually already starting, okay. you know, if I, and so no, is more just kind of, you could tell some sort of thing was going to happen. So let's go work at a big place and let's, let's learn from the the big boys, so to speak. And so I got, it was interesting. I mean, recruiting in December when the economy's slowing down, like you sort of made my own way. Like I had a friend who interned at Dominium, which is where I ended up working an apartment company. They're all over the country, like a top 50 owner in terms of units. I think they're at like 30,000 of billions of property, more or less it's owned by like four or five people with no outside, no outside money. So their system, they do affordable housing. So their investors, so to speak, as they, you know, create affordable housing, they get tax credits, they sell them to investors. They have the cash to then fund the deal yeah. with debt and equity. And so it was a great place to learn. I mean, really a fun place. I was only there for a year cause I got a, a like a different offer or a friend of mine worked at a retail developer in Rockford, Illinois. And yeah, you know, it's interesting, like the pay jump was, was huge. It was almost like double. So, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't pass that up. But what's, what's funny is from an education standpoint, I probably would have been uh, better off just staying at Dominium hmm. with all I would have learned. So I do tell that to people now where if someone's asking like, what should I do? Like my career advice to people, it's get mm-hmm. to your spot. Like if you want to do real estate as a, principal or something, you know, as then you just you just need to get to the spot. Like, don't hmm. don't take a job as a lender because it pays a little more. Or it's there. Like, just even if you need to be the intern or run an errands for them, like you're in the door. Download our hundred plus page passive investing guidebook today. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities as well by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show.
1: It's hard to know that you're there, right? I mean, I think the challenge is looking forward to where you want to be in five or 10 years and not wasting time doing something because it's a good job in the meantime. Right. I mean, having the courage to go for it and get to your spot, you know, sooner is better. The more time that you waste doing something else, you might be making a better living in the present. But if you're not happy and it's not what you want to do long term. Right. Exactly. It's a waste in hindsight. Right. Yeah. Um, But it's hard for 22 year old Drew to identify that. So
0: I wouldn't have known that at the time. And then that pay difference was so much that that would have been hard to, even if I'd known that, to, to pass it up. But yeah. especially now, since I'm doing only multifamily, like obviously working at a multifamily place longer would have been uh, would have been super helpful. But at the same time, I learned a ton about commercial property because that's what they did at rubloff All they did, the place in Rockford, all they did was commercial deals. So all then retail I retail centers, you said? They owned some office too, but yeah. it was, you know, all. All shopping centers and so learned a ton there and i bought you know that product type of my own too and so that was mostly all learned at rubloff so it was, it was uh it was helpful
1: um, and now you're in rockford
0: so fast forward to um and actually i should i'll jump back to talk about the start of Blackhawk. so i started a company with two other guys in 2008 okay uh, we were just sort of at the start of it you know moonlighting you know so working after work basically nights and weekends on this business So when told my story kind of like this to one of the the interns there, Brian. And he, he was like, that's great. You're doing deals on your own. We should go talk to my dad. I think he'd want to, like, he's bought the building that his business is in. He bought that. He's might be interested in investing in property. So, you know, I don't waste any time. I was like, great, let's go talk to him like tomorrow if we can. And I was printed off deals off of LoopNet. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't underwrite anything. I just had them printed out and, you know, just Retail deals all sorts of stuff just okay. uh, and uh, also i don't know how much he wants to invest so i've got a two hundred thousand dollar duplex we're all in minnesota that's where dominium yeah. is based and uh, um, where we all were living and so i got a two hundred thousand dollar duplex in uh, the dinky town neighborhood i got a three million dollar shopping center in the uptown <laughs> neighborhood in minneapolis and i got a five million dollar condo deconversion or something or another in the bay of san francisco i got i just like a a whole you know let's what are we interested in here
1: yeah it was like an amazon distribution and they
0: weren't like fully underwritten i think these are just printed off a loop net like what are you what are you thinking you like so we go meet with the dad and you know just kind of tell him what i'm up to and they liked it and the the dad he really liked this three million dollar shopping center i remember going like all right guys like uh I think I said this out loud, or I, you know, I for sure was thinking it if I didn't say it, I was, you know, it's like a probably a million dollar like down payment for that, <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, of course we know that, <laughs> and so it was like sh- to me it was hard to hard to wrap my head around uh, someone investing that kind of money in a deal, and you know, I hope Jim's fine with me saying all this, <laughs> but like I still the first that first deal, you know, he invested five hundred and twenty thousand dollars in, and I still, Jeez. the whole thing was totally surreal because again with my parents, I mean they they never would have that kind of money to throw in a deal. And I honestly, I didn't know anybody, even in my whole life that I had met, I don't think could,
1: could do that. It, so what was it that Jim saw in, in, in you and Brian at that time and starting it out? Was it an enthusiasm for the business? Was it your track record? Did you just happen to find the one of a thousand piece of real estate that was the right deal that he was looking for? Or, no, you know, it's well, a big commitment.
0: And I think, it, you know, because if you think about the track record at the time, I mean, sure, I had done some deals, but to then buy a multi-million dollar property when I've only bought stuff that was 700,000 or less like I so I mean a tiny amount might have been track record but in and also too was it's kind of funny in retrospect like I was a year older than Brian so and I was in the workforce like as a full-time employee he's the intern so I'm like coming in more as an expert you know Hmm. I'm like full-time and then um as this real estate professional with uh you know two months of experience, you know, in the, in the workforce.
1: By comparison, you're the vet, right? So then
0: uh, a lot of, I'm sure, enthusiasm, uh, wanting to support us, I'm sure was a big part of it. Like if this is something that you and Brian really want to do, you know, he's not going to just throw money in something that doesn't make money, but he, a big thing for him, I'm sure was getting us going. Like I, I know that. And then two in 2009, which is when we were looking at this in 2008, You could buy a like that shopping center. The tenant was Verizon wireless and half of it, you know, so just the best credit imaginable Imagine you could imagine. And then, I mean, it's we bought it like a nine cap and we borrowed at five. So the (laughs) cash on cash was almost 20 percent. So like what what and then so we could deliver a bank financed. Yeah, we could deliver a huge return to him. So you could go like regardless of what the splits are between the three of us, like the deal level cash on cash, it probably was like 18 percent on that deal. Plus, you're paying down your loan a ton because of 25 year amortizing commercial loan. So if you like don't even factor in any appreciation, you're pushing like in the high 20 percent per year return. So is a combination of all that? I wouldn't I would definitely not say it was like a, the track record, though. So it was, um, it was him you know wanting to help us and, you know, seeing a good enough deal to do it. Just to jump back to being in school for a second. The at UW Madison is really tough. Uh, They have two classes that they have really difficult curves to get into the business school. So you, you, you get into UW Madison, but you need to apply when you're a sophomore to get into the business school. And I don't know what the yield is, whatever it's called, the, what, who gets in, but it's, everyone got tripped up on psychology and accounting, not because they're necessarily the subjects are hard. They just had really tough curves. So I found out about this, like we'll call it a loophole where if you take the class at a different university of Wisconsin university, so like University of Milwaukee or Waukesha or Eau Claire, the credits transfer, but the grade doesn't. So (laughs) I heard that and I go, great, I won't need to worry about this curve where everybody gets a C, you know, or whatever it is. And then, uh, so my sophomore year, I take those classes at UW Waukesha. I live at my parents' house for the summer. And I totally just get around this whole like difficult thing and just basically walk into the business school, basically a 4.0 because I got around the two tough classes. And what made me think of this thing, too, it was another sort of like hustle story, um, which maybe, you know, Jim or Brian would have liked. So then I'm doing those classes, but that doesn't take up all your time. And the real and I had, a, you know, I was looking for deals, but I wasn't really like prospecting owners or anything. Yeah. It was just sort of inbound or what hits the MLS and then just move on it. So I decided, why don't I start a vending machine route? So I'm living at my parents' house and Madison's like an hour away. So what I do on the days I'm not spending time on school, I literally have the yellow pages open and I'm cold calling businesses to place vending machines. Like this is what I do for my summer. Like I have a, cl- a open summer. The class is like two days a week. What do you do? Do I, you know, did I go to the beach or whatever? No, I go. I'm like, we need to start a vending machine route. So I call and then, um, was a nice, uh, you know, nice setup where you, you partner up with the charity because that helps you get in the door. And then also you're donating a portion of the sales to the charity. Oh, cool. So then how, so then you have like a, a reason to call I'm with this charity and we're looking to place vending machines. And, you know, the best place, my best location was the Burlington Coat Factory employee break room. Uh, you know, those poor, <laughs> those, those folks who are sitting there having their break, What's looking sold at this. The best? I don't remember, is but it like it,
1: a, is that like a funyan market there? Or is it- <laughs> no, no, I was
0: selling just pure. Is this only candy? Cause what I did, so I saw these and I think how I got the idea was I saw these machines on eBay, you know, used for like a hundred bucks. There's the ones you just put a quarter in and turn it in like a handful okay. of candy comes through, not the, the ones we were selling. Yeah. Like chips and stuff. Yeah. It's a pretty simple business. You place the machine. So they say, yeah, it's cool. Come set it up. And then you go to Sam's club or wherever you want to go and buy candy in bulk. So yeah, I would do Skittles regular m&ms and then um i'm forgetting the name of the other one but those thinner sugar candies that uh you know mike and ike's so yeah that was those were the three i'd go with fill it up and then yeah uh and i ended up placing almost 20 machines that summer really yeah there you go and then what's what's funny you know probably my junior year i'm like what what am i gonna do with this route when i <laughs> when i i'm not I'm probably not gonna live in madison after i graduate what do i do with the route
1: just pay some kid to go around and pick up the quarters?
0: The only thing I what I ended up, believe it or not, I sold it. As as a business. Yeah. So I, I put it out, an ad up on Craigslist or Did you hire like an investment banker? You called n- yeah. like Lazard and you said, Hey, I got a <laughs> vending yeah. machine around. You know, this I just posted it on Craigslist and someone who basically that's what they do was like, Well, wow, this is great. These are already placed and I already got, you know, hundreds of machines, basically what the guy did for a, a living. And he bought it from me. And it's funny. I've, yeah, I got like a premium because they were much? placed. I'm trying to think it wasn't like a crazy premium, but like, maybe I probably had $1,500 into buying the machines. And then, you know, I sold the whole route for 2000 something. So not, you know, not the, where the money was made. It's just in the monthly cash flow. Yeah. Like it was funny, like a pretty cash heavy business where we, there was.
1: So Jim was and good. Jim saw that you were hustling. He saw that you were into real estate. He saw that in your downtime, like You found other ways to make money. I mean, I think that that probably translated into, so you guys buy a a $3 million shopping center with Verizon as an anchor tenant. It's wildly successful from a cash flow standpoint out of the gate. I imagine you guys identified that pretty early. It's like, all right, do you go back and talk to Jim and Brian? Like, hey, there's something really here. I mean, we're successful oh, on this yeah. deal. And like, actually,
0: from the first from the first deal, we already had set up the company, uh, the Blackhawk Investment Group.
1: OK, so you yeah. thought about it as a bit. It was the first yeah. deal of a business. It wasn't a. It wasn't one investment in a silo. Exactly. Like you were, you were on your, that was the track to Blackhawk investment group. And so the
0: three of us, we're going to be partners. We're going to, uh, Jim's going to be the investor at least to start. And then we, this is like our first deal. And so that, that deal is one of the most, the first shopping center we bought was one of the most memorable deals that I've done just because getting that first one done and seeing like that amount of money coming in as a, from an individual investor and just it's a totally different deal buying a commercial deal versus yeah. a, a th- you know the biggest deal I bought to that point was a three unit for six hundred and seventy thousand.
1: So, so we you doing like the interviewing the tenants and stuff, and you were at like, that point like, I never had actually heard of doing kid. that. <laughs> yeah, that
0: no, I mean we that one those tenants really wouldn't have been a need to interview them because it was actually a one year old building. Okay. So I mean I'm sure they they were good with what they had there. Um, but that deal was just again I would try to keep it simple. Let's focus on the cash flow. I mean it's two thousand nine who knows when things are going to turn. But I mean, with whatever else is rounded to 20% cash on cash here, we'll have all our money back in five years. These leases go more than five years. Even. Yeah. And yeah. not that it's going to be worth zero and that we are happy. We have our money back, but just, I just try to keep it simple. And then.
1: So how long did it take for you guys to get your arms around that before you were out looking for the next one?
0: Immediately. Yeah, we were, we had like our meeting in the fall, of 2008. We identified that property. We started buying it right away. Okay. Then we closed on that one January 20th, 2009, okay. the same day Obama was inaugurated. Easy to remember. Okay. And uh, no, we had it that already We're looking at additional things to buy while we were closing that one. And then pretty much for five deals in a row, we just always had another one immediately right away. Okay. Like we were a week or two away either before closing or after and we had another deal going.
1: All shopping centers?
0: One was uh, all commercial, at least. One was uh, an office building.
1: One was industrial. The other four were retail deals. Yeah, shopping centers. And you guys are so you're in rockford brian's in rockford jim is in minneapolis is that that's still the attachment to minneapolis
0: the i was yeah so the first year so we yeah we met up in the let's call it the would have been yeah the fall i think he was a fall intern or or summer i guess i don't remember because they did have summer and spring interns too but uh what ended up happening is yeah and how we got off on this was i you know i I want to go back to the blackhawk thing blackhawk we set up when we all three of us were living in minnesota but then pretty quickly thereafter Quickly Thereafter, I got the job in Rockford. So I moved there. And then Brian went back to school. He still had to finish his senior year. at Ma- He also went to oh, U. Okay. Madison and right. majored in real estate. So during at least probably the next two, three, the first two deals, that's where we all were. Okay. And then by the third one, which would have been like August 2009, he, Brian was back in Minnesota.
1: Okay. I was in Rockford from 2008 to 2011. So... Blackhawk as a, as a business, as a brand, what you were thinking that it was going to be uh, an owner of commercial only real estate, or how did you see it when you, at the inception of Blackhawk? And then as you acquired more and more, how did it evolve? How did you see it after you had a really established portfolio? Cause it turned into a, Big business. I mean, it started with a three million dollar asset, which is not insignificant.
0: And in, you know. in total, we uh, we bought well, I think just a touch over hundred million dollars of property. Initially, we you know our strategy was just finding deals that were fully occupied or very close to it, and that were buying at huge discounts. And mm-hmm. so there really and we were only looking in the Twin Cities, so Minneapolis, St. Paul. So we there really weren't that many at least deals that we were seeing uh, like discounted apartment deals. It's yeah. like most people would just let's hold it. You yeah. know, okay, you're telling me my value's down 20, 30%. That's fine. My rents aren't really that yeah. different. And I got this 10-year fixed loan and I'll just wait then.
1: Yeah. But
0: if you own 10 shopping centers and you need some money, you start selling off your two good ones that are full.
1: Cool, that's what we were buying. We saw it again during COVID. I mean, we weren't, we weren't sure transactionally what was going to happen with the multifamily market and COVID, but it ended up being really healthy. But from an operating level, the owners were like, all right, you know, I'm seeing revenue. If the value went down, it's fine because I'm I don't need to sell it right now. And the buildings, from an operating standpoint, were able to sustain changes during the economic crisis. The retail centers and the office buildings and some of that had vacancy that did not allow it to sustain. Right, it's one of the reasons why I love multifamily is I feel like you're insulated because people always need a place to live and. Know, they're gonna to have to pay for it or the government's gonna to have to pay for it, depending on how you're set up with the vouchers or whatever. It's interesting. But okay, so you didn't see as much distress in the multifamily space, so you were acquiring more retail, but now you're a multifamily guy. So there's a lot in between now and then. So when did you become at least partially a multifamily guy? I never
0: realized that that I'm just uh was doing only multifamily till basically like within the last year almost actually, I'd say okay. you know, yeah, we And a lot of those, in those early deals, they went so well. I mean, we still own almost all of them, but we are calculating the returns. And if we sold them today, I mean, a lot of them would be between five and seven times in our money on them. So they went tremendously well. The strategy, we were not, we'd rather just keep it. Like I was telling you before, we want to, you want to keep the chips in play. You know, you sell it. Okay, cool. You made a 7X, but you then, what do you do from there? You take it off the table. Like we still like the, the deals we own. I have sold a handful of deals but it's only it's usually based on that individual asset like if we like the deal or not going forward so all the deals mm-hmm. we've sold i've honestly i've viewed them as like our weaker deals until you know now we would sell stuff if it's like we feel like it's small uh, like it doesn't is like too small for us yeah. but it doesn't make sense to own anymore within the hope of ideally like rolling that up into like one bigger property the ones that we sold is we sold shopping center in 2014 office building in 2015 and then another shopping center in 2019. Those were all just at the time we viewed those were these things have like peaked value wise. There's more almost risk to holding them. Like we lose a key tenant. Well, you know, this thing will be worth less. So let's let's move it. So, yeah, I mean, in terms of where uh, where we went, I mean, yeah. So then just kind of pick up the story from 2008 to 2011. I lived in Rockford and then we had bought Sort of our sixth deal in Minnesota, and we weren't we weren't totally sure what's the next move. I invested all the money that Jim wanted to invest at the time into into those Minnesota deals, and I was ready to, you know, be sort of done working as an employee. So I, I quit my job at Rubloff, and I took I started doing Blackhawk full time, but we you know I also had time to travel. So like for in for in a year period, I went to I think twelve countries. So I went so I you know but and then and then after all that, I moved to Chicago. And we started looking at multifamily here, so that's in 2013. Okay. So then bought my first. Uh, yeah, I didn't waste any time. By June 2013, I bought three
1: deals, and there's
0: uh <laughs> off and going. You know, there's still-
1: so. How did you how would you find the deals? Because okay, you're you have no connections. Yeah. You don't know anything about Chicago. Yeah. You're relatively new in multifamily, I guess, on a larger scale. You had done the duplexes, yeah. and how did you create your? And now, I mean, I'll. I'll Put a little context on this for anybody listening. Like, now you're regarded as a very active buyer, a very established buyer, a trustworthy buyer. So, how did you get started and how did you find the inventory? And think about like your interaction with either the principals that you were dealing with or the brokers you were dealing with. Them.
0: Looking, let's say, back over all the deals I bought, and we actually just added it up and calculated it for our new website. But 80% of the deals I bought, they've been off market or with a repeat broker or repeat seller yeah. at that point i didn't realize that was sort of like our bread and butter so i would just just was looking for deals to buy that were marketed you know i didn't know any brokers or anybody here really so there was this 16 unit for sale in the wicker park neighborhood and at that point it was not even like a changing area and you could you'd be at a deal <laughs> and they'd be like man you'd be here 10 years ago it'd be it's so funny be scary that. yeah now where it's like super established and you know like a some of these deals that people think are like they're smaller prices, but trophy type deals. Well,
1: now you realize the rarity of a 16 unit asset being available in the middle of Wicker Park, too. I mean, it's yeah, just like not, not an another asset trades. Yeah. It's low density and there's yeah. not much transaction velocity on that yeah. size deal.
0: Only one other. And you
1: like stumbled in it, but you, that was just one that you found without.
0: I think a lot of people at the time, they had, uh, you know, like a lot of pause on the price per unit. Mm. You know, it was a 350,000 per unit yeah. in like the end of 2012. So that's a big price. I don't really, the only reason I care about price per unit is because I think when you go sell it, some buyers will be more conservative with how they value it because of the price per unit. But otherwise I'm not looking at price per unit. I'm looking at, you know, what's my, you know, yield on cost, which is just a fancy way to say like, what's my finished NOI divided by my finished price. Once you're done with whatever
1: your plan was. Let's like, so price per unit is an example. I think cap rate is an example too, where somebody just looks at one metric. In a vacuum, and says like I buy this cap rate, right? right? I buy this price per unit, and you think about how much they're missing. <laughs> yeah, right. That, what if the rents I are mean, above okay, market? This is a or... 16 unit deal in Wicker Park was a new construction failed condo conversion or failed condo development. Huge apartments, good rents that are below market, and you identified that. I mean, looking at that apples to apples with a building with all one bedrooms, vintage right. one bedrooms. It's like it's fundamentally flawed. Think about how quickly the needle moves. And if somebody's looking at a cap rate, you need to put it in your own context, in right. your own business plan. And how are you going to run it? And what do you believe that you can do? Otherwise, it's just it's as soon as somebody calls me, I'm like, what are you looking for? I'd like to I'd like to buy a, you know six and a half cap in whatever market <laughs>
0: i need to know your expense ratio or yeah, something yeah what's ratio? Your-
1: yeah how do you run it yourself if if everything is apples to apples that's fine We you yeah. know, that's how we look at comps in a book but it's rarely the case so it's interesting so you found this deal that a lot of people were missing It was 16 units in the Millwicker park i mean i know the asset and you just you were there was a competitive i mean no i was the only you- person bidding on it. yeah <laughs> yeah that uh it's nuts yeah to think about that's
0: that. um i didn't realize how rare the deal was by at all and what's funny you were saying the those rarely come up nothing nothing like that came up a 16 unit kind of thing like that until for six years later and then when i did i you bought know, it because then right? i remember yeah i remember yeah. you were saying you got Someone would want to buy that, but we already already had it. Um,
1: You you kind of swooped in on that one pretty quick.
0: That could have only been on the market for a couple of days. Again, similar thing. I didn't really know the market that well. You know, when you think about what I, now we buy a building. I mean, we literally think we have it underwritten exactly how it'll go. If I bought that same deal today, I'd have 10 rent comps that I own that I can pull. Not These are advertised rents. And I have, you know, exact expense comps, exact everything been through a ton of property tax appeals i got an insurance person to talk to like where i'd have it underwritten so tightly now but then i guess to finish the thought i would focus i was just similar like just make sure this thing cash flows what you want and our metric on that deal we wanted to cash have cash on cash at 10 which i know would be crazy now but at that point we were well over a 10 this was assuming we were running it so i don't know if like leasing fees were in there but there was a management fee and there was Full other expenses, you need to cash flow the over the ten, and I was just like, don't overcomplicate it. Just that's the deal you need, and same as the first deal. If if you overpaid or whatever, just let time sort of fix it, yeah. and your your investor's happy because he wants to make at least that. So then you're delivering that, and then we're just gonna hold it. I just kept it simple.
1: It's funny, man, because now it's like now you know the on the operating level, you know down to probably a percent on your expense ratio, how it's going to go down to probably a percent on your rents, how it's going to go. But there were other challenges in the market. I think like people listening might get caught up in thinking like, oh, it was easy. Anything that somebody bought at that time turned out to be successful. Yeah, but everybody. But you didn't, nobody knew that. Yeah. Like I was brokering deals at that point and nobody knew how it was going to go. So there were different challenges. I mean, getting the deal financed, finding the investors. I mean, you, you were buying a lot with Jim at that point but like nobody had the confidence in 10 years of strong performance at that time so it's funny to think back it's like yeah you just kind of like you lucked into buying this great deal but it was it was tough there people were doing it so difficulties probably in finding the inventory, not in knowing how it's going to run for sure. It's interesting,
0: interesting how you described it. Yeah, because at that point I'm the only one bidding on it because people are still worried that we're not out of the recession or yeah. this price per unit's too high. Or but again, I was trying to keep it simple and just focus on the cash flow. And then that, yeah, that first deal we're talking about it went incredibly well. Where we bought it for five point seven million and like a year or two later to price for over eight. So we still <laughs> own it. So I didn't sell it, but the uh, you know that's pretty good. So you bought that one. Um,
1: what else were a couple of the first Chicago deals?
0: The uh, ball, an eight unit in the North Center neighborhood, thirty six hundred thirty six ten North Oakley. Uh, that deal, you know, similar was already rehabbed
1: by a guy who does a ton of rehabs and really experienced operator. It was the same broker. Well, not me, but it was the same yeah. broker as you bought the Wicker Park deal from. Yep. It's funny. You said 80% of your deals are off market or repeat either principals or or brokers and my business i looked at this recently is um it was over two-thirds it might be over 70 percent now of the deals that i've done have been with a repeat client on either the buyer or seller side is when you think about that in the context of the business that we're in and how you know tight the network is it really puts a lot of pressure on making sure that you do what you say that you're gonna yeah do. I don't mean pressure in a bad way because you you want to anyway but yeah. it's funny you look back and it you, you know as a as a young guy starting you got this or young gal starting you got to think about like how meaningful every interaction yeah. is because you might do another ten deals with that person, especially yeah, if you do right. a good job. And so that was a big source of inventory, and I, I know remains a big source of inventory for you today. Is just being trustworthy to deal with and performing
0: yeah. right. I get sent a ton of off-market deals, and uh, you know sometimes I almost wonder wonder why. Like it's uh, you know I'm getting all these looks, but it's you know when I talk to people, I mean yeah we're you know we're easy to work with. We like just do what we say we do. We explain what we want. Uh, is we're just clear. And so it's, yeah, and that both those first two deals, those were marketed. So even though the same broker wasn't, I wasn't getting any off market looks yet. Yeah. Um, and same thing, that was just another deal for cash flow. The third deal, 1801 North Clybourne in Lincoln Park, that one was a rehab deal. So yeah. we were going to renovate it. The prayer owner, they added a retail tenant, created a, a insane amount of value in the property, and then was just more like a one year hold for them. And then someone from your office, Brad Feldman, sent that to me. So that uh, yeah. that we worked through Brad on, and was a was a great deal. Similar to that, you know, we rehab that. I mean, I think we probably were all in for like four and a half million, and it priced for over six. Similar deal, but a location we don't want to sell. So we're-
1: all these these are different neighborhoods. For anybody that knows Chicago, I mean, Wicker Park, North Center, and Lincoln Park, um, they're all affluent neighborhoods. They're all established neighborhoods. They're places you go and hang out and comfortable and everything but they're similar probably from a pricing metric standpoint. Yeah. I mean, is that what you liked about them? Did you just, what, what were you looking for location-wise? Because these it wasn't like that you were buying a couple buildings next to each other where there was a huge amount of economies of scale and being in one particular right. sub-market, right? But they were similar.
0: And really, I think what I was looking for is I was already, I was targeting the established neighborhoods and then trying to just find the one, you know, messed up or mispriced deal or deal that, um, Had the rents way below market deal we're talking about now in lincoln park that needed a full rehab then the first deal the rents were way below market and so like that was our opportunity on those so we weren't looking so much in like okay what's the next neighborhood to buy into and then it'll grow into us my thought was like we'll just find the deal that is already is under rented under priced and you just are you're already in that market you create the value in a year you don't need to wait for anything to improve you just create the value immediately
1: I like that better myself. Like there, are, there are guys who have a sense, and we, we know some of the same ones who who have a kind of a, a pioneering way of looking at new neighborhoods and are able to you know improve a building probably past where that submarket's historically used to and attract the tenants and get the rents and kind of push the envelope in terms of you know the fringe neighborhoods. But I feel like that's a it's a business plan that you really have to have confidence that it's still going that direction. It's hard. What you're looking at, I mean, these are neighborhoods that have been, Wicker Park, there was, enough, there was enough trajectory to see that it was on the way up. But North Center and Lincoln Park have been affluent for a long time. You weren't making yeah. any. There was no location risk for right. those deals, right? I mean, it was just an operating level value at play. Let's make a little segue. I, wanna, I wanted to ask you a question about, and we were negotiating a deal recently, and I want to ask you when you decide you're kind of smirking like you already have a feeling when do you decide to stretch versus stick to your number when you're down to about a couple percent and a couple percent on the on the size deal that you know i'm I'm referring to is is a lot of money right it's hundreds of thousands of dollars so what is it that that makes you push one more time or stick to your guns because it's like every deal you know, as a broker is yeah. negotiating these things. There's always that last push that's yeah. the hardest. I feel like you have a good way of staying disciplined, but you obviously buy a lot of real estate. So sometimes you have to make that last push, right?
0: So I guess I would answer that with really it depends on the type of property I'm buying, where it is, and then like who are your partners in it. Like that plays a huge factor where let's say most of the deals today, let's say most of the deals today, we're trying to deliver like a certain net return to our investor. So if you're already at that number, then it's super easy for me to just stay there. Like I'm already like I'm not going to move from there uh, like I'm just that's just the number. Where if you're buying and it'll say it's your own money and you have way more flexibility. I mean, you like the deal, you can go after it. It's your you're buying it and you have another reason to you know, you might want to push on it like I think this area could be better longer term. That's not in my spreadsheet, but I'm just going to push a little. It's tough if you have an investor where you You want to deliver a certain net return to them, and I don't want to start out a deal thinking that, like, I need like a miracle to happen to like catch up now because I overpaid. So if you think I'm disciplined on sticking on a number, like that's why because we're where we have our how we think it'll go. Uh, You know, a lot of times we make like a base case scenario and an upside case and a downside, but we're bidding off the base case. Like we don't the potential for things to go way better. uh, That's because we've had deals that have gone even better than the upside case we've had some that are the most is a lot of them go like how we underwrote it so then so for us it's easy to stick to it because we're trying to deliver a certain return and then i'm just looking at the screen basically going this is what we can pay here's mm-hmm. how we underwrote it and especially now if it's we're talking about like a chicago apartment deal like we have so many comps that we own where we really think like we have this
1: underwritten well from an accuracy standpoint it's funny though because what you're buying is is kind of sexy real estate, you know, it's it's very in-demand real estate, newer construction or significantly improved multifamily product in popular urban Chicago locations is attractive real estate to own right now. But I feel like you never get out over your skis where you pay, you never talk yourself into paying more than you feel like you should. You you should, but a lot of, you know, a lot of people that I deal with, I feel like they, they get kind of an intrinsic value that they apply towards it because they're like man i just like to own that piece
0: i could see that making a lot of sense of it's all your own money because then too you could be making a bet on find this deal on the spreadsheet is not as good as the other one but i want to own this one for 10 years and beyond so then i I got transaction costs, other things to worry about later that aren't really on this sheet. So I just want to pay up for the deal I want now.
1: So if you lose a deal, and a lot of my clients are what you described, like legacy owners, generational hold owners, and they look at everything very globally and want to accumulate over time. And there's huge efficiencies of scale in doing what they're doing. So in some of what you're buying, you compete with them. And if you lose one of those deals because you compete with somebody that just really wants to own the asset, it's fine. Move on to the next one. That's how you look at (laughs) it.
0: There's very few deals where I think like, oh, I wish I would have paid up and got it that's really rare no i'm confident in those kind of like choices i guess you know there's one where i remember it was early on when i was buying those first three deals that i didn't get i was like too conservative on and you know they had hit like a home run on it but Hmm. i I didn't i wasn't sure on the area at the time where was it uh 2000 north milwaukee and one of the people at the property was talking about how man if you were here 10 years ago this would be we would all be scared right now and all this stuff and i was you know new to the area so I got a little more conservative with it, but that's, that was further, you know, not as, as nice of an area as where I had been buying. So then yeah. probably rightfully, you know, okay to be, be safe with like a location choice at that point. But that's one of the few deals where I'm like, man, I wish I would have, but the only reason I I'm saying that is because that area got so much better and yeah. then it would the, the growth would have came yeah. into you. But at the time with the info I had, I mean, I think it's a fine choice, but no, I don't have any and you bought, re- I'm
1: sure you bought another good deal you yeah. know so and <laughs> you even put the money that you had allocated to investors and your investors to work into something else that was productive and then even you know if i
0: lose a there's a deal that i had that we had going you and i where yeah. you had sent it to me we had it under LOI we couldn't get the purchase contract signed you know the seller decided they you know don't want to sell today basically you know i'm okay with how that went cuz i don't i don't feel like i know how Everything's going to play out yet. you yeah. know we, we couldn't get that deal done, but maybe the next one I do it's going to be even better. I don't know how that will work, and then actually, I guess to answer your question on the how do you move on price? So you know, I think of Chicago as a more stable market, and then I also mentioned like the product types. I mean, depending on the product type in the market, you know that that to me dictates a little bit about how you want to get on pricing. you know so this past week, I was in Phoenix, and like year to date, like their rents are up twenty percent there. so that's a place where it's it's funny to think, but if you push on price, well, that this is gonna be a price in four months. Like that it, place is moving so fast. That's a place where you could go. All right, well, if I never move on price, I might not get a deal. And then a year from now, these are all worth more than where I was even had to stretch to.
1: Let me play devil's advocate. So, in a market like Phoenix, a twenty percent rent growth is absolutely not sustainable. There's a huge influx in population. And such there's a lot of job creation. So there's a lot. To like at a demographic level, there. But at some point, the supply is going to catch up and the rents are going to flatten. So I imagine in those deals, they're competitive because it's very popular to buy in Phoenix right now. How do you confidently underwrite rent growth, knowing that the clip that they're on is not sustainable?
0: We're obviously not going to underwrite, you know, 20% or, you know, even in the high single digit. The Phoenix is interesting, and some of these other places like Tampa, what's going on? There's so much they're having such a population boom, but also of, of higher income people than who's there currently. Mm. So in Phoenix, even though the rents are up 20%, the rent to income ratio is down. So huh. meeting like the people that move there are making so much more money that their rent to income, it went, it went down. So they, they can definitely afford these rents. And so really the issue would more just be if they overbuild. Mm. And we're looking at these deals from more of a uh, three-year hold, five-year hold going, we think it can run like this. And usually we're assuming, like, let's say you mark the, mark, the rents to market. That's the thing there. There's been such a big run-up in rents. Things yeah. are all over the board. So you have a lot of sort of the similar opportunities to what I had in Wicker Park where the deals are, the rents are way below market because they shot up as that neighborhood got really, really nice. That's happening in Phoenix now where you have deals where people didn't push rents. Now they're 20% below market. And then if you maybe add on under 5% annual increase from there, like this deals look deals look strong, but it's tough to hold long-term in a place like that. If you think there's going to be a lot of supply or you, you have to put a lot more money down, we've sort of changed up what we're doing where everything in Chicago or Minnesota, we were looking at really long-term holds. And so for any new market we go into, if it's a growth one, we're, we're looking shorter term and then. We're just gonna decide at that point, like go in with the plan's gonna be a three-year hold, but then let's we'll see where we're at in year three. If yeah. things are still how they are, not well, great. Let's hold it. Yeah. Why do you want to sell then?
1: You like stress test it for three, three That's and five the base years. Case. Yeah,
0: we're here. If we talk about my base case, is ten years. So, but there you you would not hit the return in ten years unless you
1: assume some real aggressive rent growth. And are you looking at the same return metrics in Phoenix as you look at in Chicago, or because it represents a different? bucket for you and your firm but do you adapt or is your do your deal level like returns yeah. change because it's differentiating
0: yeah the way we've been looking at it we're just adjusting the you know multiple inequity that we want to earn from you know based on the period being shorter where but what we've been seeing for the right deal you're getting a higher ir on those Phoenix deals is because there's so much value add, but it's also shorter. So we're not really comparing apples to apples. I mean, really like how we've been thinking about it is, you know, your Phoenix and your Tampa, that's like a like a growth stock maybe. And yeah. then your, your Chicago, I mean, that's, you know, the cap rates are a lot higher here. Things are more steady from a rent standpoint. I mean, that's maybe more like an income stock, mm-hmm. you know, so not neither is, you know, better necessarily or yeah. not. One's not good. One's not bad. But the they're just different. So then, you know, if it, things go according to plan, it's a shorter hold, but your re- return's higher, but it's a different deal. It's mostly on, on growth. So the cash flow is lower and it's mo- a lot of the most returns that come in on sale. So it's a total, it's just a different profile. So depending on who's the investor or who wants to, you know, who would be in the deal, it's just different. If you want cash flow, you're you know, better off buying here, you know, in Chicago. Yeah. So just different. Different animal there. You guys started. are
1: on an awesome run. You're buying with just, you're just at this point buying with Jim and Brian.
0: Essentially recycling money that Jim had put into the business. So our, okay. our strategy, you know, we talked about the first three deals we did there. But then the next, you know, I think the numbers 13. We did 13 deals in a row. Where we bought them, raised the rents, and then cash out refinance. All the money or more than all the money we put in Trumbish. and then did another one. so we just recycled the same money it's, it's three million dollars just rinse and repeat where we ended up getting 30 million dollars property total. just <laughs> repeat buys you know with three million you buy 10 to 15 you do your refi, you do it again you, you do your pull out your money, Jeez. you do it again and kept them all so far I mean, That's awesome. we're looking at selling some of the smaller ones, but that we're running and gunning and we're thinking um, you know just kind of keep doing this but in uh, in 2019 actually Brian passed away. You know just like unexpectedly in his in his sleep so kind of everything everything changed really at that point you know so yeah With yeah. and so i mean really you know i my plan was uh like i had obviously done my own deals before and yeah. i was using the name brenneman investments at that point just thinking i'd only do blackhawk um but mm-hmm. then you know it was really like brian and i were the younger partners and then uh the dad he was he was really the investor so the dad, Jimmy's stepped up a lot since then where he's basically my like day-to-day partner and mm. does it on, on the Minnesota stuff. He's got a construction background and we've had to do a fair amount of leasing with losing tenants during COVID. So he's yeah. been really invaluable, but yeah, it's sort of real, I mean, just crazy where you think you spend basically, you know, your whole life working together with the guy and he passed away. So really, you know, and, and totally like unexpectedly. So uh, really kind of just shook everything up for all of us and yeah. So Jim had to really step up. I mean, he, he sold his business and then had to stay on there for a while, but he was coming to the end of that uh, period. And then he, uh, so, you know, I know he was looking forward to retirement, you know, then uh, so he's, yeah, he's been my day-to-day, you know, operating partner, essentially, you know, on all these deals we own together, you know, so that really changed things a lot where, you know, I had been just thinking I'm going to do, you know, do deals with, with Brian, basically we've been working together a long time. So, we were selling a deal for Blackhawk. So We finished that out. We ended up buying two of our, like, I think our largest two deals that we bought as part of Blackhawk. We bought in 2019 in this uh, 1031 exchange we did. Okay. Um, but then sort of after that, you know, kind of our plan with Blackhawk, we'll buy more, but it's not going to be like what it was. So then I wanted, you know, to kind of get back to where I was. We're doing my, my own deals. You know, I had been using the name Brenneman Investments, you know, when I had first started. So we, you know, I thought like, okay, I'll kind of repurpose that. And then I, when I created the Rise Invest brand. Yeah. Way easier to remember. I was thinking about using the Rise Invest or the Brenneman Investments name. I actually started it, but it was, I had an interesting moment where I had the Rise Invest name, gotten that from my, my wife at the time. And then I couldn't remember someone else's like their name, another real estate sponsor, but I remember their company name so easily because it was such a clear name. Huh. So I'm like, there you go. Like I should go with Rise Invest. That's super easy to spell, easy to remember where this Brenneman investment says how many ends or what's the thing, <laughs> you know, like that, like that yeah, same but- thing could happen to me. This is easy. I was able to get the domain riseinvest.com and I think I have riseinvestment.com and just some other like domains around it. So I was able yeah. to kind of secure it. And so I went for it, you know, started pushing that harder. I started in 2019, also with uh, like a new partner, Sam Meyer, uh, where we started Dwell. Good job. Yeah, he's great. And then, um, you know, initially starting that, we were just gonna focus on buying apartments in Chicago, and we'd be vertically integrated uh, by the asset, and then manage and lease it, handle the maintenance. So yeah, we we started out, you know, with that pretty pretty hot in 2019. I think we
1: bought. You made me talk about my brand. When yeah. I so what what what? How did you think about the brand of Rise Invest? What when you? At the inception, not necessarily today, but you'll get to today. At the inception, what did you want it to be? And has yeah. that changed at all in the first couple of years? Or are you kind of reiterating or proving what you thought that it would be?
0: Today, it's kind of what I thought it would be a couple yeah. of years ago. It was just where what I wanted to do was, was create something where um, like we just had catered to more investors. So it was like a new, It's like a new product, new challenge, if you will. Where instead of building the company necessarily, we just around one investor, one type of thing, like just where to be open to more people and, okay. and then and then kind of focus the business more so where with uh, with Blackhawk, it was a lot of fun. Like I, you know, I think i had mentioned where we did a different bunch of different product types. Yeah. The only thing that we really were, you know, went through and refined for for Rise more so after really picking the name and going with it was just making sure we were firm on the strategy. So, in the, over the course of the last year, we went back and we ran a bunch of different calculations with uh, NACREEF data. And one thing we did, it's up on our website on the homepage and then also on the Y Multifamily page. We calculated the sharp ratios, volatility, and absolute returns for all the major product types. And multifamily over the last, um, you know, the time period it was, I think, that we have on the website, 1990 to 2020. Multifamily has the lowest risk and the highest returns. So, and the trends, obviously, past performance, not, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. necessarily all the way indicative of the future, <laughs> but all those trends that were inf- helping multifamily, I mean, they're still there with the, the renter population growing, uh, aging population looking to start renting again.
1: So you bought a 72-unit deal in the middle of West Loop, 72 apartments over street-level retail, $33 million. Yep. this is like three times as big as the next closest deal that you've bought in your career. Right. right. So this is a big bet to make in a crazy time when a lot of people were not bullish on buying or, or were at least not bullish on making big, I wouldn't say bets, but investments, Yeah. right? Because I remember people at that point, in retrospect, we know that the market performed really well during COVID and the collections were strong. On the operating level, the buildings were really strong and values came back basically as soon as transaction velocity came back. But at this time, Definitely it didn't. wasn't there yet, right? Because at this time, I remember, you must have toured this deal in the middle of summer if you closed in October. And I remember everybody was like, yeah, Joe, market held up, pretty, you know, collections held up well in May, but what about June? And then in June, they were like, yeah, June was fine. But what about July? I mean, everybody was right. still like tracking it on a monthly basis, like holding their breath on the first of the month. So what did you see in that deal that gave you the confidence to buy it? And maybe where, where were you at from, what was your psyche at that point? Like, how did, you, how did you decide to go for it in such an uncertain time?
0: 2020, I've never checked my accounting uh, software <laughs> so much <laughs> with uh, rent collections or other, you know, different deferrals and deals we had to work out with, you know, people. When the market is down or there's some sort of weakness, I'm, I'm more interested in buying then. Like, yeah. I know a lot of people say, like, you should, you know, buy low, sell high, but it's hard to, it's hard to condition yourself to do that probably, you know, but I just think of myself as a professional investor and I kind of don't get emotional about it. I see it, you know, and it's sort of, Hey, now's when things are down. This is when the opportunities will be here. And uh, the investor partner we have on that deal, he's not looking for like quick flips or something. He wants stuff he can own for, you know, maybe 10 plus years. So if you think about basically a brand new trophy type building, you're going to own it for ten plus years. What happens the next year or two? It doesn't really, doesn't really matter that much over the course of the ten years. So,
1: and you were buying probably a depressed rent roll because you you had a weak leasing season right before you bought yeah. it. Right,
0: the rents were down a little, but really it was more just I think the the valuation was you know was, was a discounted or a good buy because we were in the middle of COVID, so there was so much uncertainty.
1: And you, I mean, it, that was. Talking about having an apples to apples comp, I mean it's sometimes hard to see how big of a discount that you bought, but there was a pretty similar asset that traded
0: same developer. I mean this, they had two other deals that they built and then sold. One of them was on, you know, so we paid four hundred twenty thousand a unit okay. for this deal. If you include some value for the retail, and, you know, and there was another one that they had sold, I think earlier that year. It's like a, it's like a maybe a touch nicer, but that sold for I think. Five hundred and fifty thousand a unit so like a big a big difference and then um also then there was one i think a year prior sold that is in a like that five fifty one. one that's in a comparable location and yeah. you know the finishes might be a touch nicer but not i don't even maybe not even stuff renters notice yeah. um so and then the also the our per foot was way below these other ones i just don't, don't have those memorized anymore but it was similar discount on the yeah. per foot uh, so it wasn't like those units were so much bigger or anything And then the yeah, there was one on Jackson that sold, uh, I think, a year before, and that was four sixty a unit. And then that's uh, for the West Loop. That's a
1: uh, not as desirable fringier location. The location
0: for that one's fine, but it's not. It's further from everything.
1: So I mean, you say that you're between, you know, the the first comp that you referenced. I think that one was on Monroe. That one was like almost a twenty percent discount, eighteen or so percent discount. Jackson was ten. It was a pretty identifiable depressed value that you were able to acquire this at right
0: and i mean in terms of how we got to the to the deal i mean that might have accounted for it a little bit where i don't know if those other ones were like fully marketed you know this one this one ended up not being fully marketed what happened was someone was going to bring it to market they had sent it to some people like ahead of time and so we the price that they wanted it was sort of like what would have been i think like full price yeah market pricing so then i threw out like a number like hey this is like kind of where we'd be at. And I thought like, that's not, that's like a range we would consider, like come check it out. So we toured it, let's say like on a Thursday afternoon in August. And we had it under LOI to buy it by Friday lunchtime, (laughs) signed LOI, like done. So we moved, we moved quick uh, on it. You know, we had to assume their loan. So you uh, so
1: underwrote it on. Hang on, you underwrote it on the front end. We and always underwrote it, and it validated what you thought. So you were able to turn around and offer really quickly
0: on every deal. We underwrite before touring. Yeah. So then you ha- you know what to be thinking about when you tour, and then you just update your underwriting when you tour. So we did that, and then we um, got under LY. So yeah, and again, just kind of the way we think about the deal, like knowing you're getting you're getting a good buy at the time. I didn't really. I didn't think it was like so discounted necessarily. I just thought it was a good buy. Then I had explained it to one of my buddies who works at Steel Secured. And he was like, what's a cap rate on that? And he, you know, he suggested one that was like a hundred basis points lower than what we were <laughs> bought it for. And I was like, wow, if that's how it'll go. And that was kind of like a sign of what was to come at least. Like then values, you know, really catapulted higher everywhere. Cap rates have dropped the last, you know, 12 months, you know, rents have gone back up. I mean, it's been. So whether, yeah, I mean, whether or not we bought it discounted or what it's. Did you moved. close
1: it with agency financing?
0: We assumed the loan they had, oh, okay. which was a Freddie uh, or was a Fannie uh, yeah, green loan. Okay. So, so we assumed their loan and then, you know, that was, uh, we've, we've sort of created like a little niche almost, or we've, I've assumed, you know, maybe a four loans out of like the last six deals. Like it's kind of, you know, if you got a. Tricky deal, and you need an agency loan assumed where your where your shop. <laughs> so I've done
1: well. It trims a lot of the buyer pool because some people just they kind of write that off. They want to put fresh debt on, or people don't haven't been through the assumption process in some cases. And honestly,
0: it's harder than the acquisition loan. Yeah, because everyone you just
1: underrate for it, you change numbers in the model. It's that hard to see. And if it's if you're able to acquire the real estate at a lower value, and you desire to hold it for ten plus years yeah i think it's a good model
0: you know we're solving to like a net investor return so if you have to put a lot more down that'll yeah. make your returns lower so we still gotta you know make sure that it checks all the return boxes but this did at the price we were at and yeah we're a really great buyer when there's an assumption i mean i've done i think 30 agency loans now so hmm. it was, you know like when i you know present that with the offer and say i know you got this fanny loan you need assumed great We've done like 30 fanny or Freddie. Which one. is the
1: opposite of what most people are saying. They say you have a fanny loan to assume. Oh, man. We realize
0: that. So we're able to do it. But we, you know, we want to get a bit of a deal for doing it. Yeah. So we, you know, we made it happen and they were able to sell it during COVID. And
1: you got a lot of positive press for it, too. And it was a good deal. I think it was a really, really good deal for your brand. And, you know, for you as a buyer, I think it seemed from my standpoint to be kind of a Almost like a springboarding event, you know, where it really seemed to kind of like elevate what...
0: Because we had been looking at, you know, we had offered on a $45 million deal like earlier that year and, and we were looking at bigger stuff, but that was, you know, to that point, the largest deal I had closed was $13.5 million and that was earlier that year. Yeah. So then, you know, that was it's a lot easier to go to like a $40 million property now or whatever and say you bought it, something for $33 million you know, and yeah. close it during COVID. Uh, that's definitely right.
1: And you bought a few deals since you remain active in addition to looking at phoenix which you talked about you're still very actively looking acquiring in chicago yeah
0: just trying to expand uh you know get some exposure to those growth markets everybody's talking about yeah
1: (laughs) it was uh it was fun to be able to flip the script on you a little bit that is a lot i mean i've known you for like 10 years maybe almost 10 years and we we talk a lot but um I didn't know you were a magician. <laughs> I try to deliver the two sentence story. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, right I didn't uh, it was so it was cool to hear it. Thanks for sharing it.
0: Thanks for being on. And then if anyone's interested in investing in any multifamily deals with Rise Invest, you can go to riseinvest.com. We have our whole portfolio on there now. And then if you want to sign up to see future deals, those are open to accredited investors. You could just click the invest now button, fill out your information and we'll get in touch. Joe, how would people get in touch with you?
1: I'm easy to find, man. Um, my last name is spelled S-M-A-Z-A-L. There are not that many smazels out there. So Google Joe Smazel. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. That's my best um, social media for nice. business stuff. So track me down there. Cell phone number is 312-848-6682. I'm easy to get in touch with. So find me online. It'd be great to connect with you.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcast. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brinnaman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax
0: advice or an offer to buy or sell securities, and the speaker cannot be held responsible for any
1: direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.